Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We are bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Robbie Sika, a physician, entrepreneur, and senior consultant working at the intersection of technology, analytics, sports, and health. Robbie is the chair of the COVID Sports and Society Workgroup, whose members include leaders from professional sports leagues to the White House, FDA, and leading laboratory and technology companies. He's the founder and CEO of the Sports Medicine Analytics Research Team, the Associate Director of Data Analytics at the Mayo Clinic, team physician for the New York Yankees, Senior Principal Consultant for the Denver Broncos, and a Senior Principal Consultant for both Tonal and Aura, wellness tech companies that are changing the game in home and personal wellness technology. Robbie was instrumental in the state of Minnesota's professional sports response to COVID-19, and his work has been featured on CNN, ESPN, CNBC, Forbes, and Sports Illustrated, among many others. Robbie's had a huge impact on the sports world and provides a guiding vision for the future of data-driven performance management. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Robbie Sika to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Robbie. Thanks so much for having me, Avi. Appreciate it. Yeah, really excited to dive into this idea of data-driven performance management and how you're you know, leveraging that and really the COVID pandemic to bring forward some changes you know, really in the diagnostic space and maybe in the healthcare space. Uh, but maybe we could start by just getting our audience a brief background into Robbie, right? Who you are and, and how you've gotten to where you come to today. I appreciate the enthusiasm for data and tech and sports. I mean, that's a really interesting space right now, right? We're focused on individualized medicine, individualized patient care. That's really a game changer from where we were 20 or 30 years ago. And COVID has accelerated that. And my journey has been somebody who's always been interested in sports. Sports has been the center of my life since I was a little kid to hey, how do I enter sports? How do I do it in a way that is reflective of my interests? And so I'm an anesthesiologist by trade. I was in private practice for six years before transitioning more into a full-time sports role where I met head on with the pandemic while I was with the Timberwolves as the VP of <laughs> operations and player wellness. And from there, when I transitioned out, I wanted to have a position or have a role that's reflective of my varied interests and try and bring together smart people. That's the thing that I want every day more than anything else is I want to be around smart people who challenge me to get better. And looking at the different organizations, different companies, I wanted to be in challenging situations at top of the class situations and help to grow verticals, help to build ideas and plans that businesses, teams, organizations can then execute on. And so you know, it's been a fascinating year. And now I get to enter, you know, what is a really, really interesting recession, what, you know, some are calling the Patagonia vest recession. And that has an implication on sports teams that has an implication on tech companies. Absolutely. And then being able to share the business perspective back with sports teams. The last few days, I've been talking about what's going on at Disney and how that compares to what's going on on a football team or a baseball team. And there are parallels and how you draw those parallel discussions is a really interesting way to approach decision making. 
I think it's really been impactful, some of the approach you've taken, right, to really bring these different groups together, especially in your COVID sports and society work group. It's the sports profession, right, but you're bringing together government and health and technology companies to really to find these solutions. So maybe you can share with us how the data comes to play, right? What got you, an, an anesthesiologist, someone who loves sports, what got you into the data researcher part, right? Where you really have been, it looks like pioneering some really interesting technologies there. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing for me is, I think data is data, people are people. And I'm my skill or the thing that I'm supposedly good at is interpersonal <laughs> relationships and helping okay. people to understand something. So I'm a translator. I'll take a number and I'll translate it for someone. And my first project with that was starting back in 2001 after Corey Stringer passed for the Minnesota Vikings. The next year we started giving players an ingestible pill that we could monitor their body temp. This is in early 2000. I think our first year we did it was probably around 2004, but we were building up to this after Corey passed. And so all of a sudden here I was a college senior running around on a professional football field, zapping players with a little RFID scanner, telling them what their body temp was in real time on the field. And you got guys who are 102, 103. You got guys who are 97. The guys who are too cold are saying, oh, a coach isn't going to say I'm working hard. Don't tell anybody what my temp is. The guys who are too hot are worried they're going to get pulled. And what they want to know about the information is different than what the athletic trainer wanted to know, different than what sure. the coach wanted to know. And you learn that data means something different to different people at different points. And it's the same number. And you have to translate that information. So I was planning on going into orthopedics. Sports medicine was my dream. And I was diagnosed with keratoconus, was told that, hey, you know, you may not be able to operate at the level that you want for the next 20 years. Is this really what you want to do? And so I switched into anesthesia and finished up my anesthesia residency, understanding that I wanted to stay in sports in some way. Found a business partner who I've worked with now for almost a decade through Twitter. Wow. And we built a massive injury database where even yesterday we were helping a player to guide him through an injury. So we're able to help through the data, through the numbers, predict how long someone's going to be out, what's going to happen. Wow. And this is the type of information that, again, like if I can be just that person who's whispering into your ear, like, here's what the number means. Don't be afraid of it. It's okay. Here's how we're going to adjust. That's the way I view it. And that's a very personal thing. And through COVID, yeah. when you're starting to tell someone, hey, you know, you're positive. Here's what that means. Here's what the implications of that. That's a very trusting relationship because people were very afraid at the beginning of the pandemic. Even now, COVID disrupts more than any previous illness, more than any previous little virus that someone could get. Like if you got influenza in 2018, it probably didn't, unless you were going to the hospital, really impact your decision-making a week later. If you were feeling good, you were going to go, right? Like if you got influenza, oh, I'm sick. If you were feeling good in two days, you were going to go on the trip. You were going to go be around your teammates. You're not going to do that now because we're talking about five days, even if you're asymptomatic. Like, what does all of that population level guidance from the public health agencies mean at the individual level? So, for me, I recognize I'm not that smart. I wanted to pull together during COVID the smartest people in the room and talk about, okay, how can we not rely on swaps? How can we come up with an open testing platform? How can we do something that's different that maybe can provide a future for diagnostics that maybe can provide a future for testing in a variety of different ways. Fantastic. I mean, is that what, you know, are you referring to the Saliva Direct initiative or your partnership with Yale or is it even beyond that? Yeah. You know, the, the Sports and Society work group started 
with the purpose of developing and really trying to beat up the study protocol that okay. Nate and Ann developed. I mean, those two are, are brilliant lab minds. They're brilliant infectious disease. You know, how do you detect something minds? We wanted to talk operationally about what does this mean for the world? Because saliva direct. How are you going to go do that? Right. Yeah. I mean, it became an operations project, which is different than what I think any of us expected. And so bringing together smart people just to challenge you on our first call, we had the folks from Rutgers who had already developed the first EUA right. saliva test. And they told us that our test wasn't worth anything. This was a bad idea. And I wanted them in the group just because I had a feeling they were going to do that. Because you want to be, okay, like, let's level the playing field. Let's make sure everybody's clear. If we can convince them sure. that there's a positive here over time, then we've really got something. And that's what we wanted. Like, we wanted to know what are the limits and then try and go above and beyond, because we think that this is something that maybe it's poolable, it can be cheaper, it's more accessible, it's a platform, it's an opportunity for us to do something that's different. And for me, like at the very beginning of the pandemic, I saw the impact with our own players, the lack of early testing results had an impact on one of our players, family members and being able to see not getting results in a timely fashion, it still impacts people today. If you can't get your test results, and so that's why we rely on, in my view, many times ill-fated rapid tests and antigen tests. And we do need to scale more rapid point-of-care tests. We do need to have more rapid, poolable PCR tests. Yeah, I recall my, you know, personally, the same situations, right? And early on, wondering how you could and get the test back, right? And you were waiting, you know, sometimes three days in order to get those results back. And like you mentioned previously... And and that's three days early because I saw seven days for some people at the beginning. And, you know, with the stigma of it, right. And and you're wondering, you know, at least back in the beginning, like, what is that going to mean for me? And and how is that going to impact everything I'm about to do? It's really important. And I'm so glad that there's people like you that are bringing together the smart minds to try to tackle these challenges. There was a social stigma to COVID early on. And I remember telling Andy Slavitt, and this was in early to mid-March of 2020. I think it was right after Carl's mom was diagnosed. We had done a, a Zoom call together for the whole team. And I said, this is a virus that points a finger. Unlike anything since HIV, this person exposed me. This person gave me a virus. And that's still the case even today, even though it's really hard to prove anywhere outside of maybe pro sports where you're getting enough sequencing. And even there, sequencing is slowing down considerably. And so why are we worried about who gave it to you when it's a (laughs) respiratory virus? But that's the nature of something that takes away your time, right? Like this takes away more time than any other virus that we've seen. And that's a big deal. And I think one of the big challenges we will face as a society Mm -hmm. is we currently face these people who are like, oh, I don't want to test. Oh, I don't think I need to be out five days. I want to get back to whatever essential work I have. <laughs> and that has a negative impact on public health, Avi. And that, that's a yeah. big, big problem. So how do we break past that? I, I mean, I remember when my daughter first early on in the pandemic had COVID, right? She tested positive. And my first feeling was anger, just like you're suggesting, right? Man, I can't believe this. And where did this happen? I'm trying to think through. Yeah, at school, was it a dinner? But you're right. It's because I knew, of of course, I was, as a parent, afraid, right, for what may happen. But understanding that, you know, kids were much less susceptible. And really, she was mostly asymptomatic. So I I wasn't really too worried for her health at that point. But what was that going to mean, right, where she's gonna have to be out of school for 14 days back then, right? And, you know, and what was going to happen? I think we need to start to normalize a couple things here. And 
Charlie Munger has a great saying that if you want to understand human behavior, understand the incentives. <laughs> we need to Very incentivize true. good behavior in this world. And good behavior has to be tied to some sort of outcome. The reality is I'm a big believer that vaccination is probably too controversial and too difficult on a time basis sure. to get everybody vaccinated at the same time for a virus that is evolving way faster because of evolutionary pressure and because it's more contagious than almost any virus that we've dealt with. So the idea that vaccinations are solution is probably not the right thing, but we do need to get boosters. We do need people, particularly those who are high risk, sure. because it is your number one thing that reduces your risk. So we need to normalize vaccination as much as possible and put vaccination into places that people go to. We need to move it out of pharmacies and clinics and have it in places where they can just go and it meets people halfway. And I think that normalizing public health at sports venues, yeah. at entertainment venues is a great step. The second part is taking testing and incentivizing testing and linking it to treatment. I believe that treatment is a more palatable solution for many people. If you take something, this makes you less contagious, gets you back faster. That's the American way. <laughs> oh, it gets me back to work faster. Oh, I can go on this trip. Oh, I can go to that game. That's what right. people want. And I think that based on the data that we've seen in pro sports, entertainment, and the other groups that I work with, Paxlovid does do that. Paxlovid reduces your time of contagiousness. It makes you negative faster. It helps reduce your symptoms. It helps you get better. It reduces the risk to long COVID. In my cohort of 150 plus people who've taken sure. 10 days of Paxlovid, I have zero long COVID. I have zero rebound. So I do believe that up till now, 10 days of Paxlovid does make a difference. But you've got to tie treatment once you test positive that, hey, you're going to automatically get treatment. And here's why you take it. Right. And I think we need to change the way we share medical information from public health agencies. This is a big one, and it's probably outside the scope of anything that you or I are probably <laughs> going to be able to have a meaningful impact on. But the reality is being fully vaccinated today still has the same definition it was like 17 months ago. Right. Two shots, right? Like that's not fully vaccinated. So when are we going to get around to saying, look, this is your annual or your biannual or your semi-annual injection? Sure. This is what you need. So we've got to evolve how we share information and get real-time data to the government so that they can make these decisions. Do you envision that more like the flu, like how there's a, an annual a booster for that? Or is it really about tracking the information to see how effective we are at the public vaccination? Well, I think it's both, but I think you're right that it probably just knowing the efficacy at preventing the primary illness is probably going to end up somewhere between 40 and 70%. That sounds like a flu shot to me. Yeah. And that's because of not, a, not everybody getting it, the evolutionary pressure on the virus, the sheer contagiousness of it. That's what we're going to deal with. But that's why we have to have, you know, 1A, 1B, 1C, and we've got to have right. more treatment options that are available. We probably need to chase this with a little bit of monoclonal. Like we need to have that available for the people that want a single treatment. And there are other things that we as a society have to change because what I'll tell you that won't be acceptable in five years is I got COVID, I'm out five days right. or 10 days. That's just not for a society that's go, go, go. Slowing people down that much, I think is really, really a challenge. And this is what Wall Street needs to understand is we need to emphasize the treatments. And this is why testing is important because the last thing you should want is your whole office has COVID. I think there's a lot of logic to long COVID being a real challenge for broader society if we just let this 
ravage us over and over again. <laughs> That's something that really does worry me. Yeah, I mean, so testing is important to bring forward the people who need the treatment, right? So we need an effective treatment. At least for COVID, it appears that to be some good candidates. And so it's important that we can get the message out about treatment so that you can get tested and know that you can do something about it, right? Yeah, it's, you know, information is power. And just like for the individual who wants to know, like, you know, hey, what's my temperature today? Is that yeah. going to impact my performance on the field? Like, we have to be able to give people that information in real time, have it be accurate. I think there's a lot of people who also don't know if they can trust the test. Yeah, I think that... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, you know, you mentioned earlier this flood of rapid tests that, you know, that kind of came out earlier because people wanted information quickly, right? And now there's a, a bit of a stigma that I don't want to, you know, participate in, you know, around the accuracy there. Um, because look, technology adapts, right? And it will continue to get better. And there's a lot of push and research today to bring point of care diagnostics in place that are just as effective as PCR. Yeah. So I'm interested in your take on some of those technologies that are coming out, right? Where you can kind of do some of these at home molecular tests, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think the molecular tests, look, we know that the molecular tests are more sensitive and more able to detect low levels of virus than an antigen test. That's the way they were designed. Sure. That's something that you or I or people in the diagnostics and scientific space can understand. The average person doesn't understand this. And the average person also never thought, nor did the companies think that we would be testing with an antigen test to say, can you get on a plane? <laughs> We haven't even figured out what a contagious level of virus is. Right. I think we know that based on sports. I think we use things like a CT value, which none of us talked about three years ago. But we use things like, oh, it's a CT value of 29. Maybe you're contagious. Probably still, if you're below 30, you're contagious. But that's something that we haven't proven. Right. And these are the things that you know we've challenged public health agencies. We've challenged organizations like can we do that study? Can we prove what is a contagious level of virus? Look, is a 30 saliva? <laughs> is a 30 in the nose a little different? Probably. These are the things that when you have millions and millions of cases, you probably should do that research and you should probably do things the right way. Yeah. So it's just a little worrisome that we still haven't done some of those research studies. And I don't think they're going to get done because organizations don't want to test now. But I think these are going to be the necessary things for us to understand. Think about this. Like if you had influenza, yep. would you ever test 10 days later for anything? Yeah. We've never done tests to like, you know, like you're asymptomatic, you're good. Right. We're still testing people. And at some of the organizations I've worked with, we've had a remarkably almost 0% workplace transmission rate. And that's due to two things. One, testing, because we test people and we understand how to bring people back. And the economics of testing people upon return is just as economically beneficial as testing to screen and prevent illness, even just testing the symptomatic folks. But the second part is we still mask. Yeah. And we've moved completely away you know, in a season where hospital beds, pediatric hospital beds are full, we've moved completely away from masking. I saw three people on my flight to Denver who were wearing masks. And we just need to have a, at least a mask optional culture Yeah, at the very least. Like we need to encourage people to do what's right for them. And if people want to mask, then we shouldn't shame them. Remove the stigma, right? Yep. I think you saw in the earlier 2000s, right, when you know, SARS and some of these other flus were going around Asia, right? This introduction of the mass culture and, you know, myself who travels internationally quite a bit, you know, used to see that earlier on. And um, now it's coming here, right? You see that population growing. I think of folks wearing the mask. There still is a stigma, like you're suggesting, where, you know, oh man, why is that person wearing the mask, right? And you're right. How does it bother you, right? Let them be, do what they need to do to protect themselves. And yep. Well, and I think we need to educate people that masking does work. 
But masking is not foolproof. It certainly is something that, you know, I think you've got to pick and choose the right times that are the highest risk for most people. It's hard to mask 24 hours a day. And, you know, sure. I deal with this with my four-year-old at school. And we talk about, you know, is there an appropriate time for her academically and developmentally for her to take her mask off in school? She still masks. She wants mm -hmm. to do it. She makes that choice. But I want her to be able to communicate with her classmates and her teacher. And if they can't hear her, then we need to give her the alternative there. And we need to give her something that can work. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned in the beginning of our conversation around, you know, you're preparing for the recession, right? And, and what that might mean for some of these organizations. And maybe we can think about the, the need for change in diagnostics, right? And the innovation that might need to come along with the change in the economy and the change in the world around us, right? There's a lot of things going on in, in the world today. How do you see diagnostics changing, right? What do you see from what you're involved in and how that may come to bear? Yeah, I think, you know, what we're going to focus on, just like what Amazon and the big companies in the world have focused on is we need to get information to people faster, cheaper, and with more accuracy. That's it. Like just those three things. Okay. And if we pick a North Star of how we're going to do that, we can say that at the individual level, people want to know, they want to know cheaply, and they want to know that it's for sure right. Nobody's going to say, I want to know less well, <laughs> have it be more expensive, and have it be harder to get. So... That's the trend. Okay. That's what we have to accept. And that means that diagnostics is going to move into places that's less traditional, not the clinic, not the lab. It's probably going to move into people's homes. It probably needs to be mobile sure. and follow you around. But it also can't be so confusing such that it gives you a sense of, well, what do I do now? Right. Because you've got to be able to tell someone, here's an actionable thing. So we've got to tie treatment or we've got to tie something back to diagnostics. Now, at some level, if I'm hosting Thanksgiving at my house, I may want to know if anybody's COVID positive. <laughs> yep. And running the diagnostics on 20 people may be cost prohibitive, may be time inefficient, it may not be easy. But you know what? Maybe a poolable, hey, can I pool 20 in a pod? And is that something that's useful for me? Well, companies haven't traditionally done something like that in the diagnostic space. Usually labs, and this is something that we struggled with at the beginning, right. when we were working with Saliva Direct, a lot of labs told us, one, it was a debate whether or not COVID was found in saliva and whether or not that was diagnostic. And that was a whole different conversation. <laughs> yes. We could talk for a long time about that. but <laughs> Absolutely. We could probably have a whole series of podcasts <laughs> on just overcoming the inertia there and the fear. But labs are very focused on meeting a certain threshold. And so they have to do things in a way that that's what they're used to. That's what their CLIA license relies upon. That's sure. what, you know, all of their licensing is dependent upon. We have moved to the world of untrained swabbers, <laughs> you know, multicolored spits that you're analyzing. I mean, I can yeah. tell you that there was a lot of blue spit, green spit saliva that we were looking at. And what people, again, need to understand is it has to be normalized. And businesses that make decisions now, Bob Iger said it at the Disney Town Hall two days ago, our North Star is profitability. That allows us to do what we want. And so how do you show the economic benefits of testing at your business? That is by showing at the individual level, our employees are incentivized to maximize their health and wellness. And here's how we're going to do it. We are going to make sure that testing is available for them and their families. Sure. We are going to ensure that they have access to treatment. We are going to ensure that it's done in a cost-effective fashion. We are going to make sure that this allows them to return as fast as possible 
to the job that they love, to the company that they want to work for. Right now, we're just seeing that companies don't have a ton of money to test. Companies don't have those means. And so if we can't test because it's economically not very efficient, then we probably need to do one of two other things. We probably need to make sure that people get boosters and recognize that it's not perfect. We probably need to have masking policies, particularly for our, our employees that we can't afford to lose. And we need to think about, again, how are we going to build this over the long haul? I think employee wellness is about to completely change over the next 12 months as companies scale back. You're not going to see all of this emphasis on recovery and wellness. What you will see is businesses taking a step back and building infrastructure over the long haul. I think there's a lot of companies that are going to focus on sleep, mental health, and other things that are a little bit more soft, but that are tangible things that I think people will enjoy during this, I guess, downturn, recession. And it will allow people to still maximize their own individual health. Probably, or, or frankly, just things that have been studied longer, right? And, you know, perhaps yep. overcome some of those barriers already, right? Where there's more evidence to tie the benefit to the cost today, right? Because I think you're right, ultimately, as an employer, right? And when you're trying to justify where you spend your money and what's going to be the return, of course, you know, employees should be at the top, right? But how do you make sure in the thousands of things you can choose to invest in that you're picking something that's going to make a difference for both your people and the business? Right? Yeah. And I think, again, we've seen it with COVID. Mental health is really important. And companies are going to lean into it. And it's hard to monetize how well that goes and how much improvement you have. But ultimately, it comes down to productivity, right? Like, does it make you more productive? Does it help people feel good? And if it helps people feel good and makes you more productive, then it's probably worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you're involved in a couple of organizations, you know, on the fringes of that, right? Tonal and Aura, both kind of personal wellness technology companies. Can you share a little bit about how that came to be and and what your involvement is there? I think both of them from what I've seen, right, and participated in is very data driven, right? So beyond just the casual experience, right? These are technologies that are really trying to give you the next step in information. Yeah, I mean, Tonal was something that I had a chance to hear their CEO speak at a Super Bowl venture event. And I just said, like, I love your product. And (laughs) I pursued working on research and working with them for over a year. And we finally landed on something that could work. I think the concept of democratizing strength training and making it accessible to the masses. Yeah, it's a $4,000 gym, but you could have your whole family on it for less than $100 a month getting personalized classes, getting individualized training. Like when I started using Tonal, I had no idea what I could lift. And I worked with professional athletes. It gave me that feedback that, hey, I can do more. And I think that's an incredible tool. And you're going to see Tonals in different places now, whether it's retail settings or healthcare settings or other places where it's going to make a difference. And it's all about like the superpower there is the data. Giving it back to individuals, whether you're a provider or patient, is a really cool thing where people get to see how they're doing. And you get that feedback, which you never get with a dumbbell, which you never get with other pieces of technology. And then how do you translate that? You know, that's where I come in because it's trying to translate that information into, okay, now this is reducing your risk of injury. This is how, you know, you can approach this information or this is how much progress you're making. And so it's just a really exciting time to work at a company that I think has an organic story with a a wonderful founder like Ali, who built a home gym for himself to help him get into the best fitness that he could. And for him to get better physically, he wanted to say, can I scale this? 
And that's the ultimate question with any of these businesses, right? Can you scale it? Sure. And as it relates to Aura, it's the same thing where it's like, hey, here is something that can give you great information on your sleep. It's a more accurate place to measure it than the wrist where a lot of watches are based. What's interesting there is, you know, during COVID and just like with Tonal during COVID, everybody knows the day they tested positive, right? Right. Like everybody can think back to what was going on. There's not many times in life that you can think about like, Hey, I got sick at that time. Like we've all had tons of illness, but you can point to that day. I remember where my daughter was sitting <laughs> at the kitchen counter. Exactly. Yep. That moment. Yep. And so with Aura, because of what they've been able to do during COVID with illness detection, because of what we've been able to see with Tonal with drops in strength during COVID and how long it takes people to get back to normal, there's a lot of really unique normative data that we can compare to. And there's a lot of things that I think give us a, a unique opportunity to help folks going forward, whether it's, you know, hey, can this tell you that you're sick a day or two before? And Aura's got tons of information on, you know, ovulation fertility for women. There's a lot of different angles that you can look at some of the stuff that they're detecting earlier, but giving that back to an individual person, like it's all about individualized medicine. And I think that's the part that excites me, right. getting to work with interesting companies, put them in the hands of not just athletes, but, you know, interesting companies where, they get to work with other employers or other organizations that we set up. And you get to see how that data impacts productivity, how that impacts health and wellness. It's just a really fun, exciting, collaborative time. And again, it allows me to work with really smart people, which is what I want every day. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a lot of fun and very impactful. I guess it's similar to that story of having the football players and just the, I don't know if I call it a pill, right, that takes their temperature. Today, there's more information than ever about, you know, the professional athletes and how they're performing. And I think there's more to come around, you know, that data that will be available live, yep. right, while they're performing in their jobs, I guess, if you will. How do you see that coming to light? And what are some of the next steps that we should all be looking forward to there? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a lot of discussion right now on continuous glucose monitoring on some of these other things that we can monitor, cortisol, okay. even heart rate. How does this impact gambling? How does this impact the money surrounding sports? I think, you know, if we want to look for what's likely to happen, <laughs> a lot of this is going to impact the money situation. But individuals own their own data. And I think we have to respect that, right? We don't understand why that guy's heart rate is 160 or 140. There's a lot of reasons that could go into it. Sure. Maybe it's fitness. Maybe there's something else that's going on. Maybe the guy's really stressed at home. And for us to make that spot judgment and interpretation, we have a long, long way to go. And so for me, it's about understanding you could have all this information. What do you do about it? Right. I could identify somebody as high risk today based on a movement screen. They're high risk to get hurt. I had this conversation yesterday with someone. If I pull the guy from practice and he doesn't get hurt, was I right? If I pull him today and he gets hurt tomorrow, was I wrong? If I pull him and he doesn't get hurt at all, I don't have that data metric now to prove that that data actually mattered to his injury. So all of these things are pointing to the fact that we don't necessarily know operationally, just like with Saliva Direct, what to do. We have to learn. Yeah. And this takes time. This takes an understanding that more answers will come after you have more questions. And we just have to ask questions. Is this information relevant? What does this mean for this individual? When I was with the Timberwolves, we had a player who, if his Fitbit score dropped below 75, his knee was more likely to hurt. Oh. That wasn't what Fitbit was thinking <laughs> we were going to do with sleep scores. Sure. But that was the way he manifested his lack of sleep, his lack of recovery. And you think about, Avi, if you don't get sleep, you've got kids. What does that mean to you 
versus what does that mean to me? What does that mean to you if you are doing this with work, if you are doing that with work? And then what do you do about it? And so if we move past the athlete example, and we think about if you're a surgeon and your Aura, Whoop, Fitbit, Apple Watch, whatever your score is, or you completed your rings yesterday, <laughs> does that mean you should do surgery today? Does that mean you should not do surgery today? Does that mean you're fully recovered? Who gets that information? Does your patient see that? Is that sitting on your forehead? We've got to humanize this and we've got right. to understand, like, how do you give back that information in a humanistic, meaningful way? And every company is a little bit different. I think Apple views it as, hey, we're going to collect a lot of population level data, but we're going to encourage people to do little things that, you know, help at the population health level, stand more, get up more, right. walk more. At the individual level, that may not make as much of a difference. It probably does if you got 5 billion people wearing your Apple Watch. Right. But at the individual level, we still have to be able to translate that into what that means for them. Because does 7,500 steps mean anything to this guy who walks 7,000 steps? What do we do about that? Does that change his knee pain that day? Does that change you know, something else for him? I think it's a really good point, right? How do we take all this information and individualize it, right? You know, I know with AI, we're able to look at the big populations of data, make recommendations for people. And I think that's just getting better, right? And so, you know, as more of this research is done and more cause and effect is pointed out, I think we'll be able to leverage these tools even better. I certainly look forward to it. It's just going to take some time. We're just not there yet. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I had this conversation with somebody yesterday about whatever you want to invest in tech. Yeah. You should probably invest half of that right now in tech and half of it in the people who are going to actually manage the tech for you. And with companies with a hiring freeze, that tells you like right now we're not hiring people. So we're probably going to invest a little less in some of these tech things that can help evolve stuff. We're going to build infrastructure on the front end. Like we're going to build data storage, data security. We're going to build like those pieces first. And then we're going to start to figure out what we're going to collect because we've got the storage, we've got the security, we've got the, you know, how to implement it. And then we're going to go get the people. I think the people are just as important as the tech. So I don't think that those should be disconnected. I think those probably have to be done hand in hand. Probably you're a great example of that, right? Someone that can help translate this information and bring people together to understand where we should go. It's always going to be a judgment call, I think, right? And I really believe that the data can help us, but ultimately, you know, we're the ones that have to use it and do the right thing. Yep, absolutely. I think, you know, similar to this, right? It's going to take more time for saliva. I'm, you know, big advocate of, of saliva and just accessibility, right? To healthcare, like we're talking about democratizing testing and vaccination. It's going to take things like saliva, to make it more accessible. And that's going to just take more time and more testing and more data, right? To be able to overcome some of those stigmas, like you saw earlier in the pandemic with, you know, is it real? Can it really give you a clinical result? Yeah, I completely agree with you that saliva is going to be a huge platform for testing and diagnostics in the future. We've got to get labs comfortable with handling saliva. Sure. We've got to get labs comfortable with pooling. We've got to get labs comfortable with, okay, like this is a, a medium, like what is an acceptable sample? What is not an acceptable sample? I mean, there were companies at the beginning, like I remember how much saliva we had to produce <laughs> versus how much you actually need to do a diagnostics test. There's a big difference. Right. And so, you know, you look at like the initial tubes that you got from the Rutgers group and how much saliva, how big the tubes were versus now there's a fraction of the amount, right? Yeah, it's a pin drop. And so you don't really need that much saliva to make a difference and to have a test. So things are going to evolve. This is something where I'm a big believer that I think Anne and Saliva Direct have a vision for open source science as much as they have a vision for saliva. We need to be collaborative. Very true. Saliva Direct 
brought out the best in the NBA, brought out the best in professional sports. There were companies that were licensing it. I'll never forget Brett Girard said during our initial call, he said, you know, what's the business model here? I said, we just want to give it out. He said, how much money do you need? We don't need any money. Well, who funded it? The NBA. So you just want to give out this recipe and test that you created. Yeah. So we just want to give it out. Like there's no business. We just want to help people. And he called it the single most generous thing that he had seen up to that point in the pandemic. And look, it's an honor that, you know, people from the White House helped us. Right. It's an honor that people from the CDC and FDA and different public health agencies have supported what we've done with Saliva Direct and with other diagnostics. But it's all about collaboration. And I think the beginning of COVID did bring about a lot of sharing of resources and sharing business practices and making sure that everybody was on the same page. That was one of the coolest things that could have happened during the pandemic. But now we're in a point where everybody's competing <laughs> for their lives and has no money. That is different. And we need to keep up that collaboration because collaboration is key to getting through stressful times. Working together is key to getting through the tough times so that you understand, hey, this is what I can get from this group. And this is what I can get. And you're just more aware and you can ultimately build what you want. Yeah, I think that's a great way to close out the discussion, right? Really, it's going to take us all working together to get through these times and the next times to really make everything better, which is what we're all after. Yep. The future of healthcare is faster, cheaper, more effective. Any other parting wisdom for us or things that you're looking forward to? I think for the people that are out there that are listening, you know, think about all of that as it relates to your own individual journey and how you can develop that relationship with your doctor or your provider how you can develop that relationship with your family so that you can be that person who can guide testing. This is going to take at an individual level. I always tell people we need individual evangelists out in the community who are telling people why it's important to test for COVID, why it's important to test for any disease, and why it's important to utilize the appropriate healthcare resources. There's people that are out there to help. And there's great tools that we didn't have at the beginning of the pandemic, Definitely. whether it's Lucera, Q, Saliva Direct, none of those existed at the beginning of the pandemic. Use those things. Use them when you need them and recognize that there is a true value and that all of those companies came out of collaboration. They all came out of the best of BARDA, the best of all of the different initiatives that came about during COVID. And we're going to deal with COVID. It's probably going to be here for our lifetime. And we will manage it, but get your booster normalize testing, normalize treatment, normalize vaccination, and encourage people. If there are people who are out there wearing a mask, say thank you. Thank you yeah. for valuing your health. And thank you for valuing my health because it does make a difference. Awesome. Well, Robbie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. You know, your background and approach to healthcare collaboration and your focus on data-driven performance management, I think is really fascinating, right? Bringing people together, helping to translate this information. Appreciate it. It's been fun. Happy holidays to you and your yeah. listeners. And uh, hopefully we can chat again soon. Definitely. If you want to learn more about Robbie's work, we'll post a link to his website in this episode's show notes, which you can find on our podcast site, www.spititoutpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders.